0: Germs don't snore. Sap will never go out of style. You don't want to overbrush a fossil. I can't even imagine avian live birth. Does the person who named Mars have a website? Do crickets love terrible comedy? Nature doesn't conform to your tween trend. I'd rather die in a swamp than a parking lot. I'm surprised there aren't more rabbits. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 26th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast that I decided to make, with the help of some of my friends, about my favorite side of doors, the outside of them. This month, because I haven't received many questions from listeners for a while, I decided to make some up. Although there might be some real ones sprinkled in there, you never know. It'll be up to you to decide which, if any, of the questions were submitted by actual listeners, and which ones were submitted by fake people of my own invention. Here's the first question. Dear Out of All Doors Is Squall named after a character from the Final Fantasy series of video games Or is he named after the verb meaning to cry or scream loudly and violently For which the example sentence on Dictionary.com is The Hungry Baby Began to Squall Sincerely, Hubert H. Multifaceted Well Hubert, I'm glad you asked because the answer is the latter Squall has never heard of any Final Fantasies whatsoever Alright, who's next? Dear Out of All Doors, what is your favorite biome? Sincerely, Jessamine Teresa Nautilus. That's a great question, Jessamine. There are so many biomes to choose from, but in the end, I think the official stance of Out of All Doors is that while they're all good, temperate broadleaf forest is what feels like home, although I was very tempted to pick xeric Shrubland as a sort of obscure elitist pick to highlight our eclectic taste. Dear Out of All Doors, is Chomps a good name for a wild dog? Sincerely, Altruista v Hospitalier. Well, Ms. Hospitalier, that depends on two factors. Number one, does the wild dog look like a Chomps? And number two, does the wild dog act like a Chomps? Having never had any experience with this wild dog that I know, I can't answer those questions for you. But if you can look deep within your own heart, put aside worrying about the cholesterol that you see building up there for a moment, and truly answer yes to both of those questions, then I see no reason why you shouldn't feel okay about calling the wild dog Chomps. Although I should note that having named the wild dog, you should not now try to neuter or spay it by yourself without at least having an experienced vet or former vet on the phone with you telling you what to do and helping you shout calm down at Chomps if things go awry. You'll want to put the vet or former vet on speakerphone to help you shout calm down at chomps if it comes to that. Dear Out of All Doors, did I hear Adam shrieking while he was editing audio the other night? Sincerely, Adam's neighbor Freddy. Of course not. I handle all recording and editing frustrations with grace, aplomb, and serene silence. If you indeed heard anyone shrieking, it was probably our other neighbor Danny, and he was probably shrieking at a car in his garage. Dear Out of All Doors, is Grang ever going to successfully recover the login information for the old Out of All Doors blog? Also, how did he get the name Grang? Sincerely, Stupid S. Foolish. Well, stupid, I can only assume that the S in your name stands for slow, because if you've listened to this podcast at all, then you should know that Grang is not capable of getting the login information for the old Out of Old Doors blog, because while he does indeed possess a doctorate in philosophy or something, he is a clueless rube whose life is made up of the consequences of his terrible decisions and incredible strokes of good fortune that prevent the consequences from being as dire as it often seems they should be. He got the name Grang because one time in college I called him Grig, and no one laughed. Then I called him Grang, and everyone laughed. And while we're on the subject, stupid, Baby is called Baby because for a while in 2006 and 2007, I was calling everyone Baby, as in Baby Stupid, or Baby Adam, or in the case of my sister, Baby Ape. But then I stopped calling everyone Baby except for Baby, so there was no need for further clarification beyond just the word Baby. Dear Out of All Doors, can you describe your ideal hike? Sincerely, Lawrence of Aruba. Gladly, Lawrence. My Ideal Hike starts well after sunrise, and for the first time ever, features no portions of the hike in which I hate hiking. While hiking, I see goats, bighorn sheep, a bear, a mountain lion, and Andy sees a lammergeier, so he's guaranteed to be in a good mood for the rest of the hike, even if he gets buried in a rock slide. And I guess Matt sees bull elephant seals mating, which isn't very realistic on a mountain, but whatever. If he sees bull elephant seals mating, he'll be in a good mood, even if he has to get emergency airlifted for the third, yes third, time in his life. At the top of the mountain, there's a spectacular view of other mountains, valleys, and lakes, and also a spectacular view of other hikers who look tougher and fitter than me, but they're turning back out of fear and exhaustion. Next, I am photographed drinking a Summit Pop, and I tweet the picture to a response of six or seven rapturous likes. Let's say eight, since this is my ideal hike. Then marmots carry me back down the mountain on a rustic but comfortable palanquin whistling all the way. Then, back at the van, Baby doesn't spray his own hand with bear mace and make everyone's noses run and eyes water and throats burn the whole way back to the hotel. Dear Out of All Doors, do you want more reviews and ratings on iTunes? And does Adam have a Patreon for all Huge Pop stuff at www.patreon.com hugepop? And is Adam working on a novel about cults and goats? Sincerely, the Apostle Paul. Ha <laughs> ha! Well, sir, your name might be Paul, but I don't believe you're really THE Apostle Paul. Nevertheless, the answer to all your questions is yes. And I'd also like to add that as of right now, I've written exactly 46,136 words of my novel. Donations will help. A lot. Dear Out of All Doors, when are you going to make another big batch of Mamwerch? Regards, Anonymous. Never! It takes forever to make, and then no one eats it. It just takes up space in the refrigerator for weeks until I have to throw it out. It's a total waste of time, food, and money. Everyone always says how much they're craving it, and how they're going to eat so much of it, and then they don't eat any of it. It all gets thrown in the garbage, the entire batch. No one has ever eaten any of my work. Stop asking, Anonymous, and stop asking everyone else who's always asking. You know who you are. Dear Out of All Doors, Settle an argument between me and my wife. Who would win in a conflict between the sun and a gas giant? Assume their respective budgets for this conflict are roughly equal. Sincerely, Gordon Sincere Circly. I have no idea. Let's begin, shall we? All right, folks, listen, I felt like we might be a little light on segments this time around, so I figured I'd just throw some material together to make sure you get your usual full content load. So here's what's going on in this segment. I'm going to look at some pictures of nature and describe them to you. I know this sounds like it's going to be bad, but it isn't going to be bad. It's going to be good, and it's going to fill time as ably as any other segment. I mean, consider the quality of some of the other segments. I'm not going to name any names. If you're a regular listener, you know how I feel about some of the other contributors. And I'm not going to fake sneeze their names or anything. I'm just going to let this vague illusion stand without further clarification, which is unlike what I'm going to do with the pictures I'm about to describe, Because aside from clarifying who exactly I mean when I say I despise certain contributors to this podcast, this segment is going to be all about clarification. Anyway, I typed the word nature into Google and I'm going to describe the first five image results I got by doing that. Now, you've probably heard it said that a picture is worth a thousand words, but unless you're photographing the Constitution or something, that's incorrect. Pictures are actually worth exactly 100 words each, so that's what you're going to get for the description of each picture, 100 words. And once you've heard all 100, you'll be able to see that picture in your head as vividly and accurately as if you were looking right at it. So here we go. Picture one, waterfall, green trees, gray rocks, some ferns, also green, a stream of water in liquid form. Everything is mossy except for the water. All right, look, that's all there is to say about that picture, and that was only 23 words before this sentence, but I'm going to count the words in this sentence toward the total, and then I'll make up the difference with the next picture. Okay. Picture two. This picture is tiny. It's of train tracks. There are trees and grass on both sides of the tracks. No moss in this one, and no waterfalls or streams either. The train tracks look like they come to a point on the horizon. That's called the vanishing point, and it has to do with perspective. Actually, all that really matters is that these descriptions average 100 words apiece. So picture three. The sun's shining through some trees and making shadows on some more grass. And everything's pretty much green. And that's pretty much it. Can you imagine thinking this picture could be worth a thousand words? And yes, I'm counting that sentence. I feel like it helps describe the picture, as does this one. Picture four, here we go. This picture has it going on. A pearlescent river frothing with foam carves its way through a verdant meadow, flanked by a mighty forest, which nearly equals the verdant meadow for how verdant it is. And all the while, puffy, 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 puffy clouds float obesely overhead Picture five Alright, so the total of the previous four pictures was 246 words So to get the average up to 100 words per picture We really need to describe this one in intense detail I should also note that I'm counting the words like Picture one and picture two and so on into the total Anyway, so this picture is actually a painting it looks like Does that count as a picture? I guess so Wow, this is going to be hard. Okay, so one of these trees has pink leaves, and two have blue leaves, and one has green leaves, and there's a stone wall and a path and some grass. Oh, I just noticed a signature on it. If I could read the signature, I'd tell you what it says, and that would be two more words, but no, I can't read it. Sorry. I've really lost a lot of respect for pictures over the course of this segment. I actually just thought of some more to say about the first picture. A broken log pointing into the picture looks like the mast of a pirate ship, which is an evocative observation which has pushed me very close to my word count goal, as has this commentary on my own observation. The end is in sight. Did I mention that all of the pictures are artistic? And I'm not going to say which one, but one of them makes me want to commit arson for some reason. Now we're done. We push our cart up one aisle and down the next aisle. A voice comes over the intercom and says, Clean up in an aisle. We look around and don't see a mess, so it must not be this aisle that needs a clean up. We put some items in our cart and we take some items out of our cart. That's shopping for you. We wonder what section we're in now. We look around and see toasters and microwaves. We must be in the food heaters section. We round a corner and push our cart down another aisle, this one stocked with rakes and shovels. Why, it's the handled implements section, of course. We cross the flow of cart traffic to reach another section, banging into several other carts on the way. Now our cart is dented. Oh well. This new aisle that we're in has eye drops and contact solution. If this isn't the liquid for eyes section, I don't know what is. Our eyes need no additional liquid since we cry so much, which is great for eye health, so we push our dented cart to another aisle. The cart is also missing its two back wheels now, so it's now sort of like a two-wheeled wheelbarrow. This new aisle has, instead of shelves, long rods made of highly grippable woods. From these rods, they hang, upside down, asleep in the hard fluorescent light of our local Goodsmart. That's Goodsmart, not Goodsmart. This is our first time visiting this section, and as a result, the first time that, during a visit to Goodsmart, we have entered... The Battery. In the bat version of Bambi, Bambi is a bat, and Bambi's mom stares directly into the hunter's eyes until he turns the gun on his own truck, blowing holes in its side, front, back, and top. In the bat version of Fantasia, there is dialogue, but it's all beyond the range of human hearing. In the Bat version of Dumbo, Dumbo the Bat has normal-sized ears and flies using his God-given wings to the delight of crowds of circus-goers who hurl expensive bat treats into the center ring for Dumbo to gather up and eat at his leisure in his luxurious carriage while being transported from city to city by a team of oxen with abnormally large ears. In the Bat version of Beauty and the Beast, Belle falls in love with the Beast just as the magic flower is about to drop its last petal and the Beast turns back into a bat, flies out the castle's window, eats a moth, flies up to the castle's attic, has a good day's sleep, returns to Belle at night, and recommends a book about bats to her by knocking it off of a shelf in the library so that it lands on her tray of food and knocks over her glass of wine, staining the carpet. In the bat version of Sleeping Beauty, Aurora is awakened by a bat biting her right on the lips. But in no way can this bite be construed as a kiss. It is definitely a bite, which upsets the evil witch, because if a bite to the lips from a bat can break a spell that only a kiss from a human was supposed to be able to break, then that reveals an obvious flaw in her spell, which is humiliating for a witch or anyone. In the Bat version of Cinderella, Cinderella the Bat is the only animal that can hang upside down from the glass ceiling, which, unlikely as it seems, is not a metaphor. In the Bat version of Snow White, the mirror on the wall, when asked by the Queen to reveal the fairest of them all, shows her a vision of a bat who lives with seven dwarves, who are all named Doc, but with different spellings, and those spellings are D O C, D O K, D O Q, D O C K. D-A-W-K, D-A-U-Q, and D-A-H-C. In the Bat version of 101 Dalmatians, the 101 Bats make Cruella de Vil into a coat, which they present as a gift to the mayor for putting a link to a feature article about them on the town website. In the Bat version of the Rescuers, two special agent bats rescue an orphan named Penny with such ease that many reviewers derided the film's lack of conflict while also praising its accurate depiction of the extreme competence of bats. In the bat version of the Aristocats, I forget what happens, but I know they changed the title to the Aristobats. In the Bat version of Peter Pan, Peter is a bat who lives in a magical place called Never Neverland, where it's always night and sunrise never comes, and the evil Captain Hook is a giant bug that Peter takes big bites out of whenever he wants with no consequences, while Captain Hook bellows in hilarious irritation. In the Bat version of the Fox and the Hound, they're both bats. In the Bat version of the Jungle Book, a jungle bat pals around with Mowgli in the jungle, They sing a song called The Bat Necessities, and the whole thing turns out to be a just-so story about how tigers got their stripes, the upshot of which is that bats did it, and deserve all the credit for doing so. In the Bat version of The Little Mermaid, Ariel wants to join the Bat world instead of the human world, so Ursula the Sea Witch grants her wish in exchange for her audible voice. But Ursula doesn't realize that as a Bat, Ariel is going to be using vocalizations outside the range of normal human hearing from now on, so the trade is totally lopsided in Ariel's favor. In the Bat version of Song of the South, there's no racism whatsoever. In the Bat version of Alice in Wonderland, the Cheshire Bat's lingering smile has fangs and is often in the midst of chewing on a bug, which is amazing multitasking because the smile never falters throughout the entirety of the chewing. In the Bat version of Pinocchio, Pinocchio leads a very happy life as a wooden boy in the belly of Monstro, the giant bat. In the Bat version of The Lion King, a very clever bat deposes Mufasa, Scar, and Simba before eventually taking over the throne as king of all animals. And in the sequel, he conquers the humans too. In the Bat version of Lady and the Tramp, a bat swoops down and eats all the spaghetti by itself, while Lady and the Tramp look on in defeat, their date spoiled. In the Bat version of Robin Hood, Robin isn't a fox, he's a vampire bat. He steals blood from the rich and donates it to the poor, thereby accumulating many self-congratulatory blood donation t-shirts, which he in turn donates to third-world people who can't afford t-shirts. In the Bat version of The Sword in the Stone, Arthur is a Bat, and he never bothers to pull the sword out of the stone because he doesn't care to. So the title is actually more accurate in the Bat version, because the sword is still in the stone at the end. Whereas in the original, the sword is eventually out of the stone, which has caused a lot of people a lot of painful confusion because they didn't watch the movie to see a sword out of a stone. They watched the movie to see a sword in a stone for the entire duration of the film. In the bat version of Pocahontas, a bat justifiably and purposely gives John Smith rabies, and he survives long enough to return to England and, in a comedic sequence, bite the queen or king or whoever it is. In the bat version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the bats work together to take the clapper out of that big bell, and they drop it in the seine, where it sinks to the bottom and Quasimodo can't retrieve it because his hunch is too buoyant, and every time he tries to dive, he just bobs back up to the surface. In the bat version of Aladdin, Robin Williams and Gilbert Gottfried recite hushed Shakespearean sonnets over footage of bats circling Arabian minarets at dusk. "'Excuse me,' says a voice. We turn to discover that the voice is not disembodied. No, in fact, it very much belongs to a body. The body of a woman who is seeking our attention. Yes, we say in unison. I'm looking for a battery. You're in it, we say. No, no, says the voice from the mouth belonging to the woman. A battery. To buy. You're in it, we say. Are we being deliberately obtuse? Maybe. Our sly smiles might be a clue. The woman and her body give up, heading to another aisle to ask a different fellow customer, or perhaps a sales associate. Lord knows we would love to linger here in the battery all day, but we promised our significant others we were just making a quick run for Pop-Tarts, and so we wink our goodbyes to the bats of the battery, and we leave. The battery. Hey all, I thought that this might be a good month to return to a segment we've only done once before, way back in episode 4. That segment is called Disappointing Sons, and it's a segment wherein I share disappointed fathers' accounts of the ways in which their disappointing sons have disappointed them. And since Out of All Doors is a podcast that adheres strictly to the tried-and-true formula of ensuring that every segment is clearly about the outdoors in some way, I've made certain that these sons are all disappointing in ways that relate to the outdoors. I've also withheld the names of both the fathers and the sons in order to encourage frankness and openness. And if you have a disappointing son, please feel free to tell us about it by sending a well-typed email to doors at gmail.com. If you are a disappointing son, encourage your dad to write to us about you. All right, the first one says... My son can't tell the difference between day and night. In fact, he says two things are like day and night when he wants to express the fact that the two things are virtually indistinguishable from each other. This contrarian metaphor usage has almost resulted in the obliteration of our entire family on two separate occasions, and now my son is no longer allowed to speak in public, especially at drag races. He also insists on calling his birthday his birthnight, even though he was born at 1117 in the morning. Hello, Out of All Doors. I want to tell you about my disappointing son. The reason he's so disappointing is that by the time he turned 14, I expected him to be able to tame wild horses by simply looking them in their eyes. But he's 14 now, and whenever he looks a wild horse in the eye, the horse ends up hypnotizing him into opening the gate and directing it to my nearest hidden stash of sugar cubes. Some might argue that I set myself up for disappointment by setting my expectations too high, and those people are right. But you didn't mention any stipulations about un. Unre- Realistic expectations when you solicited tales of disappointing sons, and if you don't read this on an episode, you will officially be even more disappointing to me than my son is. I was a disappointing son, and my son is a disappointing son. My son is disappointing because of how disappointed I am and how he's raising his son, which is incidentally the same reason I was a disappointing son. That is, because my father was disappointed in how I raised my disappointing son. And now I see that he was right to be disappointed, because my disappointing son raising resulted in a disappointing son, who himself raises sons in a disappointing way. I should note, however, that despite my disappointing son's disappointing son raising, his son is not disappointing in the slightest, and has actually exceeded every expectation. So if you ever have a segment called Non-Disappointing Grandsons, I'll probably write in again. Still, it's worth noting here in the disappointing son segment that doing a disappointing job of raising a son doesn't always result in a disappointing son, just like doing a good job of raising a son, like my dad did, can still result in a disappointing son, like me. You can critique a process while still admiring the result, and you can praise a process while still finding the result disappointing, lol. I have six sons, and they're all disappointing. I had all of their disappointments cataloged, but my eldest son asked if he could take the binder of my son's disappointments with him on a canoe trip, and he accidentally dropped it into a whirlpool. So now he's the only son who I can remember what I'm disappointed in him about, and that is that he dropped that binder in that whirlpool. I caught my son smoking weed. When I told him I was disappointed in him, he told me that weed is natural. Well, I looked it up, and guess what? He's right. Weed is natural. It is, quite literally, a weed. Am I still disappointed in him? Yes, for not telling me that weed is natural sooner. I still don't think he should smoke it, but what a revelation about weed. I can't believe he sat on that information until I confronted him. I'm disappointed in my stepson for not being my real son. He's such a great boy. Oh, how I wish he were my own flesh and blood. My disappointment in him for not being my own flesh and blood is almost too much to bear. I know that it isn't his fault, yet deep within me I feel that it is his fault, as if at some point in the infinite past he was given the option of whose flesh and blood son he wanted to be, mine or Gordon's, and he picked Gordon. But this isn't about Gordon per se. The important thing is that my stepson picked someone other than me, and now every time I behold his greatness, my awe and admiration flicker only briefly before a tidal wave of disappointment overwhelm them, swallowing them whole. My son is so disappointing that I got a bumper sticker that says, My disappointing son is an honor student at Southcrest Elementary School. It gets a lot of sympathetic honks. Another father writes in, In a weird way, I'm proud of how disappointing my son is. I guess I'm just a freak. Another father says, I have a disappointing son like those other guys. Another says, I have a son. And then another just says, disap. So those are all the emails I got about disappointing sons, but I would like to point out that in regard to the last few, I would prefer that you at least make some effort to say how your son is disappointing. Or if that's too much, at least confirm that the son you're writing in about is disappointing. Or if that's too much, at least fully complete your typing of the word disappointment, assuming that's what you were trying to write. Fine. You stupid people want to stare at tablets other than the Ten Commandments all day? Then Gentlemen's Mills will give you apps. We may not be based out of Silicon Valley, but we can BCC with the best of them. Here are just some of Gentlemen's Mills' hot new apps. Animal Identifier Simply take a photograph of any animal you don't know and Animal Identifier assigns that animal a serial number accessed via passcode. Simply answer three verification questions to earn your passcode. Verification questions can be accessed by inputting your name, address, date of birth, social security number, and marital status. Simply use our digital fingerprint function to gain access to the verification questions. Track My Tracks this app estimates with unusually high accuracy what method of conveyance you're currently using. By analyzing a host of biometric data, this app runs an ongoing, admittedly battery-depleting calculator to tell you if you're traveling by foot, horseback, bicycle, or automobile. It knows how you goes, trademark. So get out there and track those tracks. The True Elk Tune Bugler Beta Version. This newly perfected app mimics the real cry of a Randy Bull elk as he seeks out any cows in estrus in the general vicinity. From there, it auto-tunes the pre-recorded bugle to give you the edge over any competing males. But but, but, get ready to go head-to-head with an enraged young elk. It can even perform taps. Total Recall App Edition. This app allows you to look at the original Total Recall promotional poster from Android, iPhone, tablet, or other sundry device. Zoom in, out, or not at all. With Total Recall App Edition, it's up to you. What's your name? The app. With this new app, you just type in your name and let the app take over. Once you hit OK, what's your name? The app scrambles the letters you typed using a highly complex algorithm, then presents those letters back to you. What? Can you unscramble them? If you can, you can learn your name. Note, this app may be used outdoors. I'll kill you. The app. This app won't kill you, but it does claim it does, which is still quite chilling. Kill or App Whenever you're tempted to kill someone, this app provides you with an alternative activity to occupy your murderous hands an unwinnable malfunctioning version of Solitaire with pictures of knives on the backs of the cards Leaf Vindicator While you're out of your doors, roaming around, loving life, you may come across a leaf and wonder what type of leaf that leaf happens to be. With Leaf Vindicator, all you have to do is take a photograph of the leaf, type in what type of leaf you think it is, and Leaf Vindicator rewards you by telling you you're correct. Even if you type in Raisin, or Buick, or Sycamore, or something. You won't be Leaf the results. Easily outdo trained botanists at the click of a button. Mortal in... Dangerer. Survivalists at Gent Mills Incorporated swear by this must have go to outdoor app. When activated, Mortal in Dangerer scans the local area at a mileage radius of your choosing to identify potential mortal threats, and then lots off a piercing alarm to warn you and your campmates of that danger. Warning In field tests with Gentleman's Mills campers, Mortal in Dangerer has been known to alert the mortal danger to your presence, thus ensuring fatality. Ansel Adams Associated Photo Pro Multi-Technique Prism Palette Love nature, but tired of seeing all the same old boring colors? This new app allows you to view the world through various wacky distorted lenses, much like Ansel Adams may have done if given the opportunity when he was living. Options selectable include Photo Negative, Black and White, or Sepia. Don't worry about whether your phone already has these options preloaded. Just purchase the app very quickly. daisy. This app utilizes the motion sensor in your phone to identify moments in which you are falling down and then accompanies those moments with silly sound effects such as slide whistles, horn honks, splats, farts, and boy oy Bark or Bite With some level of accuracy, this new app can identify whether the image you're looking at is of tree bark or a bloody, pus-filled bite wound. As they say in the world of dog baiting, Better pray for bark. Arf, arf! Nature This app is a favorite among preteens whose parents quickly download the app thinking it has pictures of natural beauty or nature facts but instead legally allows children to say no to chores If their parents try to force them to do the chores those self-same parents shall be immediately incarcerated for child abuse It's all in the app disclaimster Children have never been lazier, indeed legally lazier, than with Nature Nature Forehead Grease Analyzer. Open this app and then press your tablet or phone's touch screen to your forehead, being sure to leave a thick film of grease on the glass surface. Now sit back and relax as Forehead Grease Analyzer goes to work. Is your forehead rated very greasy? Is it rated too greasy? What if it's rated that's not grease? In a day's time, you'll have your results. Tapical Mail. If you're a woman, this app hates to accompany you on shopping trips, and prefers the solemn solitude of a dank, dark man-cave. App of the Year 2014. This app didn't win an award for being the best app released in the year 2014, but you'd never guess that from its title. It's actually an app about the year 2014 that was released here in 2017. It was nominated for an Upcoming App with the Least Potential Award in 2016, but it did not win. Turtle Dove, the musical, The app. This non-Tony award-winning off-off-off-off-Broadway musical was purchased by Gentleman's Mills for Pennies on the dollar and can be viewed exclusively through this app. An ad-infested reformat of the original, which was filmed in the playwright's work restroom via camera phone. As the main character says of his own reflection in one of the musical's key scenes, it's Turtle Dove! Hap App. What do you call an app that's happy? You may have foolishly guessed Happy Appy, but you'd be wrong, for the correct answer is Hap App. Hap App, new from Gentleman's Mills. Hack App. Want to be a hacker but don't want to learn all that complicated hacking? Hack App will mass text every contact in your phone with a tricky request for all their passwords once per hour. Someone will bite, give Hack App a chance. Applicationer. This app automatically changes the word app to the word application every time you type it on your device. You'll never have to type location again unless you're talking about supplication. Yum, yum, give me that good new food. Boy, is it tasty and timely. I'll say, the app. Is it possible for an app to physically deliver delicious dishes right to your dinner table? Brother, if we knew that, do you think we'd be asking you, get real and give it a shot. You may end up with a tasty dish. Apology. We couldn't decide if we wanted to make this an app about the study of apps, or if we wanted it to be an app about apologizing. So it's an admittedly unsatisfying mixture of both. App Positive. This fun optimistic app is beloved by children and adults alike as it teaches all manner of grammatical rules. Just don't get a question wrong or App Positive becomes app abusive at significant extra emotional and financial cost. Horsey Ride Evaluator worried about the roughness of the horsey ride you're about to take? Open this app, strap your device to the saddle, and slap that horsey rump. After a few laps round the paddock, tell that horsey Whoa, uh, and check the app. If it says bumpy as heck, better stuff a pillow or wad of scarves down the back of your britches before you mount up. Apprehensive. This is an app that does everything. A lot of people don't realize that the app prefix is actually standing in for the prefix comp. So instead of realizing that this is a comprehensive app, they think it's an app for worrying and anxiety, or appziety, which is what we call our app that's actually for worrying. Molt Applier. This app breeds uncontrollably with your other apps to create monstrous hybrid apps that eventually turn your device into a veritable digital island of Dr. Moreau how apropos this delightful app eavesdrops on your conversations and eagerly notifies you of information relevant to the topic at hand in the voice of a wise 26 year old graduate student if the app doesn't know anything relevant to the topic at hand why it'll just change the subject to the cultural impact of the muppets how apropos can always talk about the cultural impact of the Muppets and Absolute Zero, scientifically proven to be the coldest possible atom. Alright, Grang, it's recording, so fear not, the account of how your life has gone further awry shall be chronicled for posterity.
1: I'm glad that we're recording, assuming that we really are recording now, but I'm sorry to disappoint you, Drent, because my life couldn't be going less awry right now. But I'm just kidding, of course, I know you're not actually disappointed to hear that. I'm sure you're quite thrilled, in fact, since it means that the Out of All Doors blog, which was stolen from you years ago by the Awful Maya, will soon be yours again.
0: Grang, you're sort of like the boy who cried wolf, except you're a grown man crying password. But, but whereas in the case of the boy who cried wolf, there was eventually a wolf, in this case, there will never be a password, and you'll probably just keep crying password until you die, and there will be no moral to the story, and no one will learn anything.
1: I know what this is. I know this strategy well, Drent. I do the same thing with the sports teams that I cheer for. I tell myself that they're definitely going to lose, so that when they inevitably win, I'm extra happy.
0: That's not what I'm doing. So where where are you? What's going on?
1: Well, as, as you know, the Crow Chief escaped from prison a little over a month ago, and since he's the only one who knows the login information for the blog, I knew that I had to find him before anyone else did. That means that I, a detective of the people, am now competing with detectives paid by the government to see who can get to the escaped crow chief first. It's exhilarating, of course, and as a staunch believer in the free market, I'm sure that the competition has brought out the best in all of us. Although, I've yet to actually encounter any of the other detectives, which means I must be way ahead of them, so maybe the competition hasn't brought out the best in them... Okay, but where are you? Hold on, I'm going to make you guess. But I'll give you some clues. First, put yourself in my mindset. Imagine that you're looking for an escaped criminal. Where's the first place you'd look? I don't know. I know you don't know, but imagine that you're me. Imagine you've seen the same documentary about Alcatraz that I did.
0: A A documentary about Alcatraz? What are you talking about?
1: San Francisco, Drent. Every prisoner who escapes from prison goes straight to San Francisco first. So you're in San Francisco? Oh, good guess. That's where I was going to go first, but then I thought of something. While it's an established fact that all escaped criminals go to San Francisco, the Crow Chief is not an escaped criminal. Recall that he's an innocent man. He didn't commit the crime he was imprisoned for and an escaped innocent man would never go to San Francisco. Instead, he'd go somewhere that an escaped criminal would never go.
0: Okay, and where's that?
1: Think, Drent. Let's see if you've got any latent detective skills of your own. Uh,
0: okay, where would an escaped criminal never go?
1: I'll give you a hint. The United States shares a southern border with it.
0: The crow chief fled to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean.
1: Drent please it doesn't take a real detective to know that the crow chief would drown if he tried to live in the atlantic ocean or any ocean for that matter
0: well it can't be mexico because tons of escaped criminals go there
1: correct it's mexico a place where contrary to your incorrect assertion escaped criminals never go because san francisco while it sounds like the name of a city that might be in mexico is not in mexico
0: so you're going to mexico
1: Correct! Well, sort of correct. Because I'm not going to Mexico, I'm already in Mexico. Meanwhile, all those hotshot government detectives incorrectly believe that they're after an escaped criminal, so they're probably all chasing phantoms around San Francisco. Ah!
0: Wait, hold on, so you're saying you're in Mexico right now? How did you get there?
1: Well, that took some doing. One obstacle was that I don't have my passport with me and Megan wouldn't send it to me, and when I asked her to put Timmy on and then tried to tell him how to mail my passport to me, not only did he not seem to understand any of it, Megan was apparently eavesdropping, and she got mad at me for trying to get Timmy to defy her wishes. But anyway, I knew that a conventional border crossing wasn't going to work out. I knew that what I needed was a coyote. Do, Do you know what I mean by a coyote?
0: Uh, yeah, those are the guys that uh, illegal immigrants pay to sneak them across borders.
1: Exactly, and I knew just where to find one. At Rolf's Burrito Building in downtown Croton, which, incidentally, was the only place in Croton to get authentic Mexican food. Or inauthentic Mexican food, for that matter.
0: Alright, Rolf doesn't sound like a very Mexican name. It sounds like a German name or something, or Scandinavian.
1: Uh, Okay, I feel like you're being a little disingenuous by ignoring the other two words in the title, burrito and building, both of which are in ample supply here in Mexico, let me tell you.
0: Alright, but isn't Croton in Minnesota or something?
1: I'm, I'm actually not sure what state it's in, but it's up there somewhere, yeah.
0: So you were looking for a coyote to drive you the whole way across the country and then across the border. That seems very impractical.
1: On the contrary, Drent, nothing could be more practical, because my truck is presumably still sitting by the side of the road back in the woods where the Utevald Original Outdoor Recordings Company was. So a trip across the entire country and then across the Mexican border was exactly what I needed. And that's what I got. And believe me, after over seven hours hidden under a damp pile of tarps in the back of a pickup truck, I was thrilled when we finally stopped and I found that I had indeed been transported to Mexico, the country of the rising sun.
0: Uh, that's Japan.
1: No, Japan is the land of the rising sun.
0: Wait a second, Greg, did you say you were in the truck for seven hours? If you were somewhere in or around Minnesota, there's no way that was enough time to get you to Mexico.
1: We were driving very fast. In fact, my entire body's bruised from bouncing around the bed of the truck with all the scrap metal and cinder blocks.
0: All right, okay, let's see. I'm uh, looking it up here. All right, let's see. So Fairmont is one of the southernmost cities in Minnesota, so I'll be as generous as possible and say you were somewhere around there. So from there to Mexico, to uh, to the border, it looks like it's about 1,300 miles. So let's do the math. Uh, Looks like you'd have to average a little over 185 miles per hour on the way there. Did that uh, seem about how fast you were going, Greg?
1: It did feel very fast, but remember I said it took a little over seven hours, probably closer to seven and a half. And another thing you didn't account for, Durant, is that Justin, my coyote, told me that as a coyote, he's driven to Mexico many times, so I'm sure he knows some shortcuts. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: All right, well, a 1,300-mile uh, a trip plus the danger of crossing the border must have been pretty expensive, Greg. Uh,
1: yeah, and unfortunately, it was. And it was kind of an awkward scene when, after we got to Mexico, I gave Justin an IOU instead of actual payment. He was pretty mad, and I was forced to run away and disappear inside a crowded target. But he didn't catch me. And I do fully intend to pay him back, although my debt to him will have to be considered a lower priority than my many, many other debts. Although, as I said to him, I will gladly recommend his services to anyone else looking to sneak into Mexico from Croton. With the trip lacks in comfort and safety, it certainly makes up for in speed. You yourself noted how fast it was.
0: All right, so, Greg, I'm just looking it up here, and uh, according to Target's official website, it says there are no targets in Mexico.
1: Incorrect. I've been to the local Target several times since I've been here in Mexico, and I really like it because most of the sales associates and customers speak fluent English.
0: You're not in Mexico, Grang. You didn't even make it out of the Midwest
1: drent please you're being very xenophobic right now which reminds me of my new segment idea it's called greg's abroad and it's just about me adapting to a different culture learning to love it and then instilling my love for it in my son once i meet him of course
0: uh no i love the name but i hate the concept so so where are you right now some kind of internet cafe
1: I am, and I must say, it feels so much more sincere than your American internet cafes. What's
0: it's it so, called, Grang? What's it called?
1: Let's see. It's, uh, the Break Room Cyber Cafe.
0: So the, the Mexican internet cafe's name is in English?
1: Uh, Drent, we have places with Spanish names in America, don't we? Ever heard of Chi-Chi's?
0: All right, hold on. I'm looking it up here, Grang. You're in Des Moines, Iowa.
1: Drent, you sound like a real gringo right now. It's pronounced Desmoines.
0: All right, well, I'm at my limit, Gring. I I really can't take any more of this right
2: now.
1: Uh, Okay, Drent. Bye.
0: There's a lot of nature that a lot of people don't spend a lot of time or any time appreciating, and I think that's shameful. Our lifespans are not very long in the grand scheme of things, and we should not waste what little time we have by not allotting the proper proportion of our appreciation to things like mosquitoes, ticks, and leeches. And the list of things in nature that are underappreciated isn't limited to things that consume our blood without permission. Today I'm going to be dramatizing an interview between myself and something from nature that I believe is underappreciated. Just so you know, I will be playing both parts, but I will use sophisticated editing techniques to alter my voice so that you can distinguish between the two characters that I'll be playing. Hopefully, at the end of this segment, you will have been able to clearly distinguish between the two characters that I've played, and you'll also have gained a greater appreciation for an underappreciated thing from nature. And now, the interview.
2: I'm Adam from Out of All Doors, and today on Underappreciated Nature, I'm here with Poison Sumac. Poison Sumac, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Adam. Of course, Poison Sumac. We're happy to have you. And I'm happy to be here, Adam. Well, we're glad you're happy, and we appreciate your willingness to talk to us. Oh, for sure. I'm flattered that you wanted to talk to me. We're flattered that you
0: agreed. Seriously, it was an honor to be asked. Well, you did us a great service by saying yes when we asked. I didn't even have to think about it twice.
2: I have a lot of respect for what you do, so I jumped at the chance. Well, the respect is mutual. And actually, not to turn this into a game of one-upsmanship or whatever, but I'm pretty confident that we respect you more than you respect us. And that's not to deny what you said about respecting us. That's just to point out how much respect we have for you, you know? (laughs) Oh, <laughs> Is this the game we're playing? Well, let
0: me tell you this much. We've never respected anyone more than we respect you, and I say that with the utmost confidence.
2: <laughs> it's not a game, Adam. We're dead serious. We wouldn't joke about how much we respect you. We're very serious about sincerely expressing a respect for people we respect, like you and the rest of the Out of Doors family. That's very nice of you to say, but hold on. I thought you were Adam and I was Poison Sumac i'm not saying it because it's nice i'm saying it because it's true and also are you sure wouldn't it make more sense for the lowered voice to be the poison sumac so adam would just have his regular voice that's what i was
0: thinking at the beginning but i didn't say anything i figured that was like part of the joke what joke uh i don't know so who's going to be poison sumac Look, I think part of the problem is the voice isn't going to be pitched down until post-production or whatever it's called, so it's kind of hard to tell who's who during the actual interview.
2: Okay, so what if I talk really low right now, like this?
0: No, because that's going to sound ridiculously low when it gets pitched down. And anyways, it doesn't really answer the question of which of us is supposed to be Poison Sumac.
2: Okay, you be Poison Sumac and then talk really low. Like this? Exactly. Exactly. But if all your lines are pitched down and I'm talking low, then that's going to be confusing. That won't happen. I'm nervous that it will. You're supposed to be talking low. I'm nervous that it will. It won't. Okay, so Poison Sumac, we're thrilled to have you here. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. So why is it that you think you're underappreciated? Because usually when people encounter me, I make them itchy and uncomfortable, and if people breathe in smoke from someone burning me, they might get a life-threatening pulmonary edema? Edema? I don't know how to pronounce that. Those seem like compelling reasons for people to not appreciate you, Poison Sumac, so what's your argument about why you should be appreciated more? Uh... Nothing? Nothing? I'm checking something real quick. Are you looking yourself up on Wikipedia, Poison Sumac? Uh, yes. And what are you finding out about yourself that we should appreciate more? Nothing. So you're not really holding up your end of the bargain here, Poison Sumac. You're making us look kind of bad, because we asked you on while operating under the belief that you would provide convincing reasons for people to appreciate you. Actually you're Poison Sumac, and I'm Adam, the interviewer, so you're the one ruining the segment. What? No.
0: If you have a thing from nature that you don't appreciate that you'd like us to pretend to ask on the underappreciated nature so we can record ourselves pretending to talk with it, please send your suggestions to outofalldoors at gmail.com. Keep in mind that I will be playing both parts with the help of some audio editing magic, so try to only suggest things that are within my range as a voice actor and an editor of audio. Close your eyes. Get as tense as possible. Clench every muscle in your body. Grit your teeth. Strain harder. Strain even harder. Strain so hard that you pass out. Collapse onto a relatively soft surface in a state of relaxation accomplished by brute force. You find yourself in dense jungle, but the trees have strange shapes, strange but familiar. Then you see something huge and round and red not far away. It doesn't look natural, yet it too looks familiar. Then you feel the ground shake. You hear an approaching rumble. And then a giant human woman steps over you. That's when you realize, you're very, very small. The jungle is a yard. The trees are blades of grass. The huge red ball is a regular red ball. This is by far the tiniest you've ever been. But how tiny are you exactly? You'd love to know your exact size, preferably height, weight, and circumference of your waist. But in order to accomplish that, you're going to need some measuring instruments, and getting access to those while you're tiny is going to be quite a tall order. But on the other hand, the rest of your many, many, many life problems now seem very small indeed. No one expects a very tiny person to have a plan for their life, No one expects a tiny person to have attainable goals. No one expects a tiny person to behave in social situations. And no one expects a tiny person to have an office job. A tiny person with an office job would take forever to type a single email. A tiny person typing a single email would have to crawl from key to key, jumping up and down with their full weight on each desired letter. And even that might not be enough. A tiny person might have to build a tiny catapult designed to launch tidy payloads of debris that are nonetheless significantly heavier than the tiny person at each desired key, and even then you'd have to assume the typos would be significant unless they managed to build a tiny catapult that could fire its tiny payloads with more accuracy than any regular-sized catapults in all of history. And so freed from your problems, you set off on this new funner quest to find a means of measuring your new tiny self. Then you realize that you don't have a tiny pen or tiny paper on you. How are you going to write down your measurements once you get them? You'll never be able to wield a regular-sized pen in your present state. Only a tiny Hercules would be able to accomplish such a feat. And even then, he would require extensive intervention from the tiny gods. You're going to have to memorize the measurements. But your brain is so tiny. Will there be enough room in your tiny brain to remember all three measurements? Height, weight, and waist circumference? You decide that if there's only room in your brain for two measurements, then you'll go with height and waist circumference, because the only reason you really care about your weight is because of how fat it means you are. And a measurement of waist circumference is also capable of telling you how fat you are. As you travel through the yard, you start to feel nervous that you might run into an ant. In Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the ant was nice, but all of your encounters with ants in real life have been dreadful, even when you were of regular size. Did those ants hate you because you were of regular size? Has the one thing that ants hated about you now been corrected? Or did those ants hate you because of qualities you still possess, and now instead of simply crawling on your food or biting you, they'll trample your food into the ground and devour you whole? You don't actually have any food with you, which is its own problem, but truth be told, you're a lot more concerned about being devoured whole by an ant than you are about your food getting trampled. Just then, an ant appears, lumbering through the grass. You look around for a weapon, but all you see is stuff that isn't a weapon, which is the absolute last stuff you want to see when the whole reason you're looking around is to see a weapon. Then you look around again, giving yourself one more chance to see a weapon, and that's when you see it. The very thing you wanted to see. A weapon. The good news is that it's a great weapon. The bad news is that it's of regular size, but you're still tiny. Still, with nothing else to see except for non-weapons, you run toward the weapon. It's a 9mm handgun lying in the yard... Some genius probably dropped it there, and yes, listener, there are quotation marks firmly in place around the word genius there, because no true genius would ever leave a 9mm handgun just lying in a yard unless that genius was some sort of absent-minded genius type like Einstein, who is literally the only genius most people have ever heard of, which I guess makes him pretty representative of geniuses as a whole to most people. Anyway, you run toward the handgun. The ant also runs toward the handgun. But while you're running toward the trigger, the ant has a different idea. It's running toward the barrel. This could work out very well for you. You get to the trigger, and it's very regular-sized compared to you, who is tiny. The ant is standing right in front of the barrel and trying to bite it closed, but it's having very little success. You push harder on the trigger, but to no avail. At any moment, the ant might grow up enough to realize that it's never going to bite that barrel closed, and it might come for you, and it might bite you, which is the thing you're most trying to keep from happening by impotently pushing on the regular-sized trigger. You realize the irony of the situation. When you were regular-sized, you were constantly pulling the triggers of handguns on accident. In fact, you've fired a gun hundreds of times, but not a single time did you do so on purpose. But now that the one thing you want most in the world is to pull the trigger of a gun, you can't do it, because you're too tiny and the gun is too regular-sized. But then something astonishing happens. A swan appears, but the swan is not regular-sized. Oh no, this swan is tiny like you are. It floats down from somewhere above the blades of grass, glowing with a radiance that seems to emanate from somewhere beneath its pure white feathers. The swan flies without flapping, which is a thing you can't recall ever seeing a regular-sized swan do, even when you've threatened them at gunpoint, demanding that they fly without flapping. You never intended to pull the trigger at them, of course, but you always did, of course. On accident, of course. The glowing swan flies to the trigger. It hovers directly in front of it. Then the swan taps the trigger with its beak. The gun fires. The ant gets a freakin' face full of hot lead and is mortally wounded, falling onto its back and clutching at its thorax dramatically with all sixteen of its legs, or however many legs ants have. I can never remember if ants have sixteen legs or if that was the conjoined spiders I once heard a spider breeder describe when asked to state the personal goal that gets him out of bed every morning. Dear swan, you cry, thanks a bunch. The swan transforms into a tiny god before your eyes. Like a tiny Hercules, you have been aided in a difficult feat of interacting with a regular-sized object by a tiny god. Although in your case, the tiny god basically did everything for you. Whereas if you were actually a tiny Hercules, the tiny god would probably have been in more of a support role, since tiny Hercules wouldn't require as much help as you. "'Because you were polite, I shall grant you three requests,' says the tiny god. "'His eyes are like thunder. His clothes are like strength. His voice is like a nice scent.' His beak, which he retained upon changing out of his swan form, but which may have been the reason he chose to take on a swan form in the first place, looks worse than just a nose would. How tall am I, you ask? One half of one inch, says the god. How heavy am I, you ask? One half of one ounce, says the god. And what's the circumference of my waist, you ask? The god tells you something, but you can't hear it. Or rather, you hear it, but you can't keep it. It slips away from you the second you hear it. It turns out that your brain is too small to retain all three measurements that you wanted. But you forgot to prioritize waist circumference over weight. And you also don't know what a nice fit weight would be for someone who's half of an inch tall. But it's not that big of a deal. The beautiful thing about problems when you're tiny is that, well, they're tiny problems. But now, open your eyes. But as you do, take the peace of having tiny problems with you this month. Even when you're inside of one... Or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 26th episode of Audible Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfuss, Greg Lynch, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at Huge Pop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is the mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart style phones. And also, extra thanks to Chris Nichols for putting all the previous episodes of Out of All Doors and One Man's World on YouTube. They're at the channel Huge Pop, written as one word. We'll be back in a month with episode 27 of Out of All Doors.